All right. So friends, today we're actually going to be taking a break from our series, The Book of Genesis, and we're going to be going through a three-week short topical sermon series on the topic of faith and work. And then after three weeks, we're going to come back in Genesis chapter 6 and continue the life of Noah onwards for then. But for the next three weeks, we're going to take a look at certain Bible passages that tell us how the Christian faith is meant to inform and affect our work, our day jobs. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks through the book of Genesis, I think one of the things that we saw in in Genesis chapter 2, before sin came into the world, before Adam and Eve broke everything, is that their faith and their work seemed to be seamlessly kind of integrated with one another, didn't it? In fact, every part of their life seems to be integrated as one whole part. Their work, their marriage, their leisure, were all kind of knotted together under God, right? They worked because God told them to tend the garden. It was an act of worship. They, they got married because God brought them together. They rested on the seventh day because God did that and told them to do so as well. You see, their whole life was this integral whole. It's like their worship of God united every part of their life. It wasn't like they had, you know, marriage here, work here, finances here, friends here, family here, and then God here, like at church. That wasn't the picture. God wasn't just a part of their life. God was the umbrella that integrated every various aspects of their life. But after they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that one of the main things that broke is that our worship of God now no longer umbrellas our life. Worship of God now, church, is at best a piece of our life. You see what I'm saying? We have work here, we have family here, we have finances here, we have friends here, and then we got church here. We got worship here. That's kind of like a piece of the puzzle. And that's why, you know, this disintegration of our lives, this this disembodiment of who we are after the fall, I want to propose to us is the reason why we all so often feel fragmented and torn apart. We're kind of disjointed but also jumbled up at the same time like puzzle pieces on a floor. It's all mixed up. A Christian author named Os Guinness, he wrote something really interesting, I thought. He said in his book called The Call, I think, he said this, the modern world has scrambled things up so badly that today we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Isn't that interesting? We worship our work, We work at our play, and we play in our worship. And and look, here's what the Bible is saying. Unless we're able to somehow reintegrate the scrambled puzzle pieces into one coherent picture again, we'll never feel whole. You ever wonder why, at times, even though your work may be going fine and your marriage may be going well, and your kids are okay, and church life is all right. Everything's fine. Yet, you still don't feel whole. You wonder why that is? Because feeling whole has less to do with whether or not each puzzle pieces is successful. Feeling whole has much more to do with whether or not each puzzle pieces have been put together into one coherent picture. 
That's how you receive wholeness, which, by the way, is what the term blessedness means in the Bible. To be blessed is to be whole again, not disembodied, not disintegrated puzzle pieces. And our passage today, what it tries to do, it's not going to integrate every part of our life, but it, what it tries to do, it tries to do at least integrate two pieces of puzzle in our life, and that's our worship and our work. What would our work look like if it wasn't disembodied from our worship? All right, let's get into it. This is God's Word, taken from Luke chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. This is one of the scenes from John the Baptist's ministry. He, John the Baptist, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing work is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Thus says the Lord. Three simple, quick things I want to point out from our passage today. First, fake repentance that fragments your life. Second, true repentance that affects your day job. And third, the main piece that you can't go without. All right? Fake repentance that fragments your life, disembodies your life. True repentance that affects your day job. And the main piece that you can't do without. Let's go to our first point. We're going to cover verses 7 to 9. Fake repentance that fragments your life. Okay. We see here in verses 7 to 9, in the first piece of our passage, an example of what a fragmented life looks like. So we see here there's a crowd, okay, and they're coming to John the Baptist to do what? To be baptized. And who's in this crowd? Well, if you read verses 12 to 14, you'll see that there's a bunch of working professionals, blue-collared workers, right? You got tax collectors, specifically, and soldiers. That's who you got there. But then we also see in verses 12 to 14 that these working professionals weren't really doing their day, day jobs with integrity, right? It says that they're extorting money from people, they were cheating others financially. But yet, here they are, wanting to be baptized by John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist tell him in verse 7? He said, you brood of vipers. Wouldn't imagine starting a sermon today like that. You know what that means? He said this pretty much, you sons of snakes. That's what that means. You sons of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
So the picture here are four snakes back then, probably now, I don't know, that would crawl from out of their holes during a forest fire and seek refuge at a nearby body of water. And John the Baptist is asking them, who told you to come crawling from out of your holes? You think this is going to help you? You think this water of baptism, this baptism ritual, is going to do anything for you? And now that's, that's really harsh, but why did he say that? He's saying that because he's trying to show them, look, this isn't how this relationship with God thing works, okay? You can't fragment your life like this. You can't extort people at work, lie, cheat, steal from them, play around with the law, and then come in here, do a bunch of Christian ritual stuff, and think that you're okay. Like, that's not how this works. Don't say to yourself, John the Baptist continues in verse 8, that we have Abraham as our father. Oh, as long as I'm circumcised, they think, because that's what it means to have Abraham as your father, right? You're marked by circumcision. As long as I'm circumcised, I'm okay. You know, as long as I'm baptized, I'm okay. As long as I'm, you name it. As long as I go to church. As long as I go to Christian businessman conferences. As long as I tithe. As long as I do all these things, then I'm fine. That's not how this works. Christianity isn't one piece of the puzzle. It's not one brick in your house amongst many others. If this is what you think Christianity is, John the Baptist continues in verse 9, and he does like to rebuke, okay? So this is not me, it's JB, but also me. He continues in verse 9, then he says this, if that's what you think Christianity is, you may not be a Christian at all. That is a harsh, harsh rebuke, but that's what he says. Look at verse 9. He goes, if, if this is how you live your life, then the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is Old Testament judgment language said by God to people in the Old Testament, specifically reserved for his enemies. If you treat God as just one part of your life, and you, if you kind of check that church box, but yet the worship of God hasn't affected other parts of your life, you may not be Christian at all. That's what he's saying. You may not have experience deliverance from the wrath to come. Now, the temptation at this point is to feel discouraged and disappointed, you know, and say, okay, so then what? You know, God wants every brick in my house to be perfect? You know, how typical of Christianity, right? Always demanding the impossible. But no, no, that's not what John the Baptist is saying here at all. Look at verse 8. How does he describe the Christian? He describes a Christian there in verse 8 as someone who bears fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning a Christian keeps with repentance. They're not perfect. A Christian is someone who lives their life marked by constant repentance. It's not about living perfectly. It's not about making every brick in your house perfect. What John the Baptist is saying here is that, look, change the imagery altogether. The Christianity shouldn't be viewed as a brick house at all. It's actually more like, he says in verse 8, a fruit-bearing tree. That's the image. Bear fruit, he says. Now, what's the difference between these two images? See, in a brick house... There's no organic connection between one brick to the other. 
Each part of the house is mechanically glued to one another with cement, but it's still fragmented. It's not whole, you see. But the parts of a fruit-bearing tree, on the other hand, is organically connected. Every part with the whole. The roots connected to the trunk, connected to the branch, connected to the fruit, connected to the leaves. If you're truly born again, if you truly have experienced and tasted and rely your eternity on the fact that Christ has come and died for you, if you have a relationship with God, your life wouldn't feel like this piece of brick. God wouldn't feel like a piece of brick that you just kind of have to force into your already made house. It'll instead, you'll feel like you're rooted in this life force that, that will bear fruit in every aspect of your life, your marriage, your financial decisions, your friendships, and yes, of course, your day job. It's going to hit that too. That's how you know that you're a Christian. That's how you know that you're saved from God's wrath. That's John's argument here. It's when godliness infiltrates every aspect of your life, which teaches us to our second point. True repentance affects your day job. So, after we said this, you know, really rebuking statement, the working professionals in the crowd responded, specifically the tax collectors and the soldiers, verse 12 and 14 says, and they said this, okay, so then what shall we do? If coming here to be baptized isn't the picture of a true relationship with God, if these Christian rituals isn't what it's about, what is it then? What do we do? And John's answer was rather surprising. He didn't say, well, here's what you do. You got to quit your job and do full-time ministry. That's the mark of a true godly Christian. That's not what he said. Look at what he said. He said, the evidence that you've truly escaped God's wrath, and now that you're living in communion with him, is that you'll go back to work on Monday with a godly sense of integrity. Look at verse 13. He didn't tell the tax collectors to stop being tax collectors. He said, collect no more than you're, what you're authorized to do. Be Christian tax collectors. <laughs> be Christian tax collectors with integrity. How about the soldiers? Same thing. He didn't say stop being a soldier and be pastors. You know. Look at verse 14. He said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, police the masses with godly integrity. That's the sign of true spirituality. See, this is completely different to many of the narratives that we have in our culture today, is it not? We hear many times, hey, if you're really committed to Jesus, some say, you know, then you'll leave your career and then you'll go work full-time at, at church. Jadi hamba Tuhan. Not according to John the Baptist here. He said, if you're really committed to Jesus, you're gonna go back to work with integrity, with godliness. By the way, interesting note, this very same event of John the Baptist talking to the, the crowd here is also recorded in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. And it's recorded there. Uh, Matthew records there two groups of people that Luke doesn't record in, this, in his record, record here in Luke. Here we see uh, tax collectors and soldiers, but in Matthew, we see also Pharisees and Sadducees in the crowd. You know who they were? They're the full-time ministers of the day. You know what this means? This means that full-timers got rebuked by John the Baptist as well. He looked at these full-time religious workers and said, you brood of vipers, you sons of snakes. See, 
If you think that quitting your career to go work at church full-time is somehow the picture of true Christianity, that only shows me that you still think about faith and work in a very fragmented way. It's still fragmented. You don't think full-time ministers can extort people as well? You don't think church staff can abuse their power as well? Like the tax collectors and the soldiers here? You don't think they have coerced people financially? Spiritually, emotionally, and unfortunately in other ways as we've seen in the past. John the Baptist here put these ministers on the same boat as the tax collectors and the soldiers. It's not about that, he says. Also, another popular narrative we see today is that many people think that if our faith has truly integrated with our work properly, the evidence of that integration is that we'll experience a breakthrough in our careers. That's how we know that our faith and work has truly come together. You know, the scaling up of our operations, the increase of our clientele, an expansion of our reach, that's a sign of of, of knowing that your faith and your work has truly become one. But again, that's not what we see John the Baptist say here. If anything, he said the opposite. Being a tax collector and a soldier back then was the lowest paying jobs in the culture. But John the Baptist didn't say, if you truly have faith, then you'll see an increase in profit. He actually said that if you have faith, you'll see an increase of integrity even at the expense of profit. You'll see an increase of integrity even at the expense of profit. Where do we see that? Let me give you a quick background on these tax collectors and soldiers, okay? Back then, there were three types of tax collectors. There was tax collectors that collected sales tax, which is what we have today, right? We buy goods. There's tax collectors that Uh, collected land tax that we have on our assets and our property, and there's tax collectors that collected toll tax. Toll tax is a tax that you gotta pay when you pass through a major city with commercial goods. You gotta pay tax on it. These people were the toll tax people. And in the Greek, it's much more clear and obvious, okay? And what would happen back then a lot is that these toll collectors, they would often collect tolls from traveling businessmen multiple times in one city. And that's illegal. They'd lie and they'd say, oh, I don't, I've never seen you before. I don't remember your face. You haven't paid me. You gotta pay me again. And they would do this to the same person two or three times. That's extortion. And we think to ourselves, well, how can they do that? How can the guards let them off the hook? Weren't there guards back then that would protect us from happening? Yes, there were guards back then. But guess who they were? They're the soldiers in verse 14. These soldiers were the tall collector's muscle. They were helping them get away with this illegal operation. And John the Baptist is telling them, stop doing that. Stop. But that means I'll lose a lot of money. I know. I know. Increased integrity, even at the expense of profit, is the proof that your worship of God has integrated with your day job. And you're starting to become whole. You know, when I write sermons, sometimes I like to get all artsy with it, you know, a little bit. I like to smooth out what I say. I like to kind of go around and about to get to the heart and all that. But I wonder if sometimes something more simple and straightforward is actually called for and better. And I think this might be one of those times. So let me just ask it simply. Are you cheating people at work? Are you cheating people at work? Your clients, your partners, 
your employees, your employer. John the Baptist here is saying, I don't care how many Christian business conferences you attended this year. I don't care how many packages of communion you've taken this year. I don't care how much money you've given to your church this year. That's not the point. You spend the majority of your time at work. And if God is not your God at work, then when is he your God? Like, by the end of today? When is he your God? And this is rebuking to all of us because we all have discrepancies, don't we? Whether small or big, between our Sundays and our Mondays to Fridays. Our lives are fragmented. And that's why we rarely feel whole. That's what integrity means, by the way, to have an integral life, a whole life. And when our life isn't integral, when our life isn't whole, our conscience eats us alive from the inside out and it's screaming at us, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not who you are. You're a child of God. But we suppress it and we ignore it and we endure the unsettledness that comes from living a double life at home, at work. Why? Why do we do this, especially in the context of work? This passage explains. This is why. Look at the end of verse 18. It's because we're not content with what we have, John the Baptist says. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And then he gives the soldiers a command that I have not yet seen anyone, including myself, able to fully obey. He said this, don't extort people. Why? Because you should be happy with your salary. How dare you, John the Baptist, say that? Do you not know how much I make? Be happy with your salary. He doesn't know how much you make, but he knew how much the soldiers made back then, and they made, they made food and board for the day. Dirt, cheap salary. And he said, be content with your wages. The reason why we suppress our conscience and we let it eat us alive is because the whisper that Satan whispered into Adam's ear in the garden you really happy with this? Don't you want more? It still screams loud in our hearts today. And we're willing to sacrifice even wholeness itself to pursue that lie. Now, let me, let me clarify here. This does not mean that you can't have ambition, of course, okay? This doesn't mean that working for that promotion is wrong. This doesn't mean that if the law is unclear, as it often is in this country, then you're not allowed to, you know, within reason and with integrity, finagle ways to make it work within legal bounds, okay? It doesn't mean you're not allowed to do that. I get it. I've interacted with enough of you to understand that the law, especially in Indonesia, is unclear. It's like, how do we know what integrity is? You know, when the laws are unclear, what's breaking the law? What's not? What's fair competition? What's not? And I can't parse through every single ethical professional situation that you're experiencing right now. But let me just say this. The main principle, 
I think you can glean from this passage, when you make these decisions, is found in verses 10 to 11. This is the germinating seed that then is applied to the soldiers and the tax collectors here. John the Baptist told these working professionals, look, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none, and whoever has food, do likewise. If you got two, share with one who doesn't have any. If you got food, share with somebody who doesn't. That's it. It's so simple, right? Oh, but it's so profound. When the written letter of the law is unclear, when you're not sure about what's permissible and what's not, what's integrity, what's not, what's fair competition, what's crossing the line, when you're not sure about that, meditate on John's words here. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none, and whoever has food, do likewise. And how that applies in your life, I don't know. I'm not an expert in your field. But let that principle guide you. Will it cost you? Maybe. But this is what happens when your Christian faith has truly integrated with your work. The promise of money and comfort won't be able to quench your love for others and your desire for rightness. That's fruit. That's what the Christian faith is all about because there is something about the Christian faith that makes it so. What is it? Let's go to our last point. The main piece that you can't do without. So, John the Baptist said this to the crowd, and the crowd, surprisingly, got really excited. Look at verse 15. They said, wow, he's advocating for lower taxes. I like this guy. Is he the Christ? Let's vote for him, you know? John said, no, I'm not the Christ. See, he was content with where he was. He didn't need to claw his way to the top. That wasn't his goal in life. He was happy with his portion of this side of eternity. His goal in life, he said in John chapter three, is to decrease so that Christ might increase. That's what he's about. I'm not the Christ, he said. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then in verse 17, he starts to talk about what the true Christ will do. He said, when the true Christ comes, you'll know because he'll have a winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire it's like, here you go, John, again, with the fire analogy. You really like this God-wrath stuff, don't you? You've said fire three times in this passage. And it's like, yeah, but that's the law. Is it not? Remember James chapter 2, verse 10? If you break one part of the law, you've broken them all. The written letter of the law says that you're done for. I'm done for. Based on the written letter of the law, we've all pretty much broken it. And if we go just by the written letter of the law, the Christ should clear us to his threshing floor to burn us with fire. That's what John Baptist is saying. I guess it's a good thing then that Jesus didn't treat us based just on the written letter of the law. Is it? Look at verse 18. What did John the Baptist also preach to the people here? He preached the good news. What is the good news of the Bible? That the Christ didn't treat us based on just the written letter of the law. What did he treat us based on? The law of love. The law of God's love. When the written letter of the law fails at work, 
let the law of God's love direct your hand. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. On the cross, Jesus said, although legally, based on the written letter of the law, it should have been you hanging here in this tree. I'll treat you with another law. I'll give you not just a tunic, but a robe of pure righteousness. And I'll provide you not just with bread, but with my own body broken for you. When the written letter of the law fails to be a good guide in telling you what to do at work, let the, let the law of God's love guide your hand. That's what Christ did for you. On the cross, Jesus treated us not just based on the written letter of the law, but in God's love, love, and oh my, was it not costly for him. But he was content. He was content to lower himself and pay the cost. He was content to be cheated by the crowd. Why? So that he can pay for all the cheating that our discontent hearts have committed. That's the basis of Christianity. That's a piece you can't do without. And how can someone who truly believes in this go back to their day job tomorrow and not be changed? How does that work? If you're a Christian here today, meaning that you believe in all this, like this is not just what mom and dad taught you. This isn't just some old ancient story. This actually happened. God became a human and died on a cross on your behalf. If you really believe this is what happened, but yet there's a discrepancy between what you believe here and how you do your job. Listen to your conscience. That's the Holy Spirit saying, what are you doing? Listen to the internal conflict that you have, the internal discomfort that you have, birthed by the fragmentation of your life, and seek true peace. That's not attained just by the success of various parts of your life, but rather by the unity of the whole. Put all those puzzle pieces together of your life, including your work, and it should fit into one whole picture that kind of somehow approximates a cross. That's what it does. Does your work, does your nine to five, contribute to that picture of the whole? And if you're a Christian here today, I mean, if you're not a Christian here today, sorry, and you, you, you're here to explore Christianity, to know what this Jesus thing is all about, May John the Baptist's words here be clear to you that if you're coming here to make an effort to attain some kind of ritualistic atonement for your sins, it's not going to work. That's not why we're here. That's not what this is about. If you're going to come here, come because you want to worship the one who's already atoned for all of your sins. Because you want to come and worship the Christ who on his cross is offering you something more than just the written letter of the law, but instead the law of God's love. And let that then infect the way you live your life outside of this room. I hope you receive it. It's the only way the scripture says, back to God. Friends, let's pray.
Father, our lives are far from being integral. I preach here on Sunday, but my life from Monday to Friday may not fully display the beautiful truths that just came out of my mouth. We sing here on Sunday, but our lives from Monday to Friday to Saturday may not display these lyrics that paint such a whole picture. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play in our worship and everything's scrambled up. We beg you, Father, that you would continue to begin the process of healing in our lives, that we would truly repent from external fake Christianity and actually have a true kind of power and life and faith that infects every part of our lives, including the way we conduct ourselves at work. Be with your people, Father, and may this city see a people from this church, from other churches, that does not just live their lives one way on Sunday, but yet another at their office. May people who don't know you be lured to you by seeing whole pictures of Christ displayed by every part of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.